And there's always a danger if we restrain ourselves and then the moment we release that, then we may veer to the other extreme. There's always a danger of veering between the two extremes. You may have experienced that when people do diets, they're very strict, keeping a certain diet, and then they stop the diet, and then they really get indulgent, and within a few months, the 10 kilos are all back on. That can happen quite easily, so we have to be aware of that and guard ourselves. There's one nice Padigata in the Dhammapada. Kayena Sangvaro Sadhu Sadhu Vachaya Sangvaro Manasa Sangvaro Sadhu Sadhu Sabbata Sangvaro It is good not to restrain the body. The restraint by body is good basically physical action to restrain ourselves regarding bodily action. Sadhu vachaya samvaro. The good is restrained in speech to restrain our verbal actions. Manasa samvaro sadhu. It is well to restrain the mind. Sadhu sabbata samvaru. Restraint is good in all cases and all around. Sabbata everywhere, anywhere, all around. Restraint is encouraged by the Buddha. So according to that teaching of the Buddha in Dhammapada. The restraint is one of those qualities where we can hardly go wrong. And in all situations, whatever happens, the restraint is always encouraged. We should keep that in mind now when restrictions are being loosened. The loosening is the opposite of restraining. So we can uh, take that teaching to heart. We can be in the heedful, we can be mindful, we can be diligent, and we not allow ourselves to get uh, carried away. It's actually very desirable to restart the economy, and in Australia, the situation is actually extremely good in international comparison. But restraint is always good, as the Buddha said. So we are loosening, but with restraint. The 
is also known as Indriya Sangvara, the restraint of the sense faculties. In Pali, there's actually six sense faculties. With the five physical senses and the mind. So the faculty of sight, the faculty of hearing, the faculty of smelling, tasting, and touching. But touching is a little bit too limited. The term touching is too limited. What is really meant is anything that we can experience as sensations with the body. It's not just touching things with our hands and that sensation, but it's also having a headache or a toothache. It's also having a nice hot shower on a cold day or feeling cold in the wind or having a full stomach or feeling hungry. Now, this is all the um, body door, the faculty of physical sensations, anything we can physically feel with our bodies. And number six is the mind. So Indriya Sangvara means now that we restrain these six. It's very similar to having a bouncer. So we have these six doors into our heart, so to speak. We need to have a good bouncer on, on every door. I'm not sure whether you have been out clubbing at some stage in your life, trying to get into the in-places and trying to pass the gaze of the bouncer where they let you in into that um, avant-garde club or whatever. Now, what is the job of a bouncer? They're usually quite strong. They're physically usually pretty well together to work as a bouncer. But a good bouncer must have additional abilities, not just a good and a physical fighter, but they have to be smart to be able to distinguish which kind of people you want to have in that club or in that party and what kind of person you don't want. If you employ a bouncer for your big party or your wedding or whatever, and this bouncer is, is not letting in all your friends, and instead of the bikies, and that kind of people start gatecrashing your party or wedding, you probably wouldn't be satisfied with that performance. A good bouncer lets in exactly those kind of people you want to have at that party or in that club. And then the, the atmosphere is nice and everyone enjoys themselves. And if the people who are heavy drinkers or violent or criminal, if they sneak in, then the party will be in big trouble. So if you're familiar with that kind of scene, or if you're the kind of person who knows all the tricks who get into the in-club, why are the gaze of the strict bouncer? You can probably relate to that. And you have to have a bouncer at each sense door in order to restrain that sense door. So when it comes to sights, what we can see, 
the bouncer has to decide whether we let that in. For example, here at Damagiri, if I look out of the Agasala now, I see uh, eucalyptus trees. I see some agave, which Carmeni had planted. I see the blue sky with a few white clouds scattered. And I see the uh, moonstones here. I see the leaves in the forest. This is what the bouncer can let in. There's no danger. Now our heart doesn't get excited or overwhelmed by desire, lust, passion, anger, hatred, from seeing trees and blue sky. So when we gardener the eye faculties, these kind of things in the nature is perfectly okay. One doesn't have to worry much. I also see uh, the phone in front of me and I'm doing this podcast. I think podcast, again, this is deliberate and very mindfully set up and is meant to teach Dhamma. But the side which you can get on a mobile phone is already much more dangerous. You can get almost any side on the internet. And many images are conducive to inflame the mind with lust and passion. Other images may generate anger, hatred, resentment, violence. If you play a violent video game, the tendency to anger is strengthened because we see in all these war scenes, we expose ourselves to them. The bouncer is failing and is letting these war scenes in. The same with hearing. I can hear the, the wind a little bit in the background. Here also a car going by. Both of them is not very dangerous. If the car is too loud, if they sometimes they do these little races here, even in the middle of the night, and then that sound is in a sense dangerous because then uh, aversion and resentment arises in my mind. Why are these people racing like crazy and they're too loud? So that is already a sound which the bouncer has to, to be careful about. It's not only about letting the sound in or not in, it's also then restraining the mental reaction. So it's good if you can prevent the unwholesome sights and sounds from coming in at all. But that's not always possible. In particular, if you're living outside the monastery and you have to go to work, you have to go shopping. Some people are very skimpily dressed. Other people may act in ways that they are inducing aversion in us. You can't prevent seeing it. This is where the restraint of the mind comes in. So even if anything gets through the filters of our five physical senses, the next question is whether the mind is following up on that and whether we pay attention to it. There's this uh, motorcycle in the background. Why does he need to have a motorcycle which is so loud? I can see that here that four kilometers. Once once I start thinking like that and I engage with that sound that is creating aversion in my mind, then aversion and resentment will arise. 
But ears, no, unless I'm wearing the very heavy ear protection, it's difficult. You can't so easily block everything at the faculty of hearing. So sounds which we don't like or which may induce wrong and also mind states and may get so. But then we can protect our mind from engaging with it, from thinking about it, from responding to it. That even if anything slips through the five senses, that the mind doesn't get overwhelmed and influenced by unwholesome mind states. It's also known as Indriyesu Guttadvara, guarding the doors of the, of the senses, protecting them, establishing a protection, a guard. So sadhu, sapata, sambaro, I put that into this little greeting. I think you all have seen at the moment you joined. A very fundamental instruction of the Buddha If there is state and meditation, where you look but you do not see, there is sound but no hearing, and so with the other senses, Ajahn. Now, yes, uh, for the five external senses, to my understanding and the way I, the teachers I find most inspiring, the uh, five external senses will no longer be uh, operating. Hearing is the last one to go. And in particular, from second jhana onwards, the five senses don't really come through anymore. Possibly with an exception of a, a physical, general feeling of well-being in the physical body. So general and the body awareness may still be there. But basically, if someone talks, you wouldn't hear it. If a car goes by, you wouldn't hear it. One usually has eyes closed anyhow, but... Someone in deep jhana, even if you pulled up their eyelid, they, they wouldn't see anything. But this is not really a state of sense restraint. It's more like that once samadhi is attained, it doesn't get through in any case. We don't have to make an effort. As long as the mind is immersed in samadhi, there's no, no need to make a deliberate effort. Only once the mind comes out, now they will again, again uh, engage with the senses. There's also a deep meditation connected with vipassana and insight, which was even puzzling to Venerable Ananda, and he asked the Buddha, can there be a state of meditation where a meditator is not percipient of the sight sound and so on, where he's not percipient of earth, water, heat and wind, where he's not percipient of the you know, meditative attainment, but still he is percipient. And the Buddha explains you know, that there is such a state for Arahants, the Bhava, Nirodho, Nibbana, as basically you know, the being percipient of Nibbana, so to speak. It is a famous state where uh, even the uh, devas and brahmas are 
dumbfounded because when they see a meditator in that state, they can't see what the mind is based on. And normally, uh, devas and bhaktas of great power, and they can have the power not to directly see the mind of a person, so they can see what they are thinking or whatever and they are. Their mind is based on what that takes as an object. But for the other hands, in that particular attainment, uh, being percipient, experiencing nibbana, and the devas uh, cannot see what the mind is meditating on; they cannot understand it unless they have attained um, the liberation themselves. And once we become out of jhana, it's quite easy to practice sense restraint because now there's so little defilement. But sense restraint is now a crucial factor for preparing the mind for samadhi. And the more we restrain the senses and the mind, the easier it will be to develop somebody. Another thing I wanted to mention, I've been looking through the Queensland Health directions. They put them out quite late. In my opinion, they should put them out a week earlier and then communicate them for one week. But the preview came out only on Thursday night. That is 26 hours before it became effective. And that is, in my opinion, far too late. And when I went now yesterday through the uh, official health directions, I noticed that quite a bit of what they had in the papers was actually not quite accurate. No one really has to read the Queensland health direction to know what we can do and cannot do. And uh, there's two which are impacting us. One is uh, the, like a private household because we, we live like as a household in the monastery, the residence here. And the other one is the non-essential business and activities directive. And by and large, I would say it's quite reasonable what they are proposing there, from as far as I can assess that. But there's one thing I wasn't happy about, and that is, first of all, that we are classed with Dhamma activities. Any religious activity is classed as non-essential And this is not my understanding of the Dhamma. And what is even worse, if I go through the Queensland Health Direction for non-essential business and activities, I have to scroll in a long time. So I have to scroll down a long, long list, and it takes a long time. Actually, if you try to scroll by just turning the wheel on your mouse, it becomes quite difficult and most painful because you have to scroll such a long time to at the very bottom, really rock bottom, the last thing in the long list of non-essential activities is any religious activity. And uh, this is very sad. To me, maybe some people say this is just coincidence or whatever, and I, I don't think it's coincidence. And I think if someone who had uh, spiritual practice themselves was writing that, it would not happen. It could not possibly happen that they would put it on a non-essential and then at the rock bottom. And even there, the first thing they mention on the religious activities is actually weddings, which in terms of Dhamma is actually not really a religious activity. It's difficult to see what is so religious about getting married, what is, what is a Dhamma practice. And even that is 
in this last little thing, what bottom, and then weddings come first, and then funerals, and then other religious activities. So what we are doing is, uh, in our society, considered rock bottom, unimportant. And uh, to my mind, that explains a lot why in our society we have so many problems with uh, depression, mental disorder, suicide, dissatisfaction, uh, drug abuse, alcoholism. The society which values any form of religious activity, and this wasn't specific for Buddhism, this was any, any form of religious activity, as a rock bottom of all the non-essentials, not even a part of the essential activities. And then in the non-essential ones, is absolute rock bottom. The society has got that kind of uh, priorities and value system is bound to experience major spiritual and psychological problems, in my opinion. There's another verse in Dhammapada which immediately came to mind on that subject. Uh, uh, this is in the Yamakavaga, the first chapter of Dhammapada, of the pairs. Asare sara matino, sare cha sara dasino, te saram nadigachanti, mitcha sankapa gochara, sarancha sara tonyatva, asarancha sarato, te saram atigachanti, samma sankapa gochara. Those who are deluded to see the non-essential as essential, but they regard what is essential as non-essential, and they will never reach what is essential. And their range is unwholesome thoughts and intentions, not leading to Nibbana. On the other hand, those who have recognized the essential as essential, and have understood what is non-essential, where they will reach the essence, they will reach the essential, and their range is wholesome thoughts and intentions, the Sama Sankapa, the second factor of the Eightfold Path, is more than just wholesome, but it's basically the thoughts, intentions, that ultimately lead to Nibbana. It sounds fairly simple and totally obvious, but if you reflect, it's obviously what is not happening in the self direction and in our society. People mistake what is essential for unessential, and they're deluded to believe that what is unessential is actually essential. So they got it the wrong way around. It's like when people quickly put on their T-shirt or sweatshirt and it's inside out. So it's just the wrong way around. And this is a beautiful example of that. From my understanding of the Buddha's teaching, if one asks what is essential, well, let's maybe start with what is unessential, what is non-essential, 
And I would propose now all sankharas are non-essential, all conditioned phenomena are non-essential, because they are impermanent. And that is a characteristic of something which is ultimately not essential. It will be gone in a while anyhow. And that is, to my mind, the best definition of what is not essential in a deep sense. There any sankhara, anything that is conditioned and therefore an unreliable, impermanent. I think we can almost take that as another translation for anicca, anatta, and non-essential. It's not really serious. It's not essential because it comes and goes. It arises and passes away and will not stay forever, ever. So I would propose that what is really unessential is sankharas, any conditioned phenomenon. Whether it's our body or our feelings or emotions, whether it is material possessions, material objects, other people. If you take any of that, what will be left in a hundred years? Well, you see what I mean by it's not essential. And if you have some material object, maybe you think, okay, that will be still around in a hundred years, and what in a hundred million years? Now, this is non-essential in the deeper sense. But if all sankhavas are non-essential, what then is essential? Asankata. Anything that is not a sankhava, anything that is not conditioned, the unconditioned, anything that is not put together, anything that is not generated by causes, anything that is not impermanent, and that is basically in the Nibbana, asankatam, unconditioned. So beautiful garden to point us back to always contemplate with wisdom, use mindfulness and awareness and uh, investigate. Is that truly essential? Or is it maybe actually not really essential? And if we detach and don't get bound up and caught up, in the unessential, then maybe we may be able to reach the essence, sarang, the core, the heartwood. There's a whole sutta about that. And many people, it's just like they describe someone. Oh, here's a question. How does conditioning arise, Arjun? I'm not quite sure how you mean the question, Malik. Could you maybe elaborate? I'm not, not sure what is meant by that. How does conditioning arise? A 
conditions that arise all the time and then they trigger and the results which become a condition for something else. For example, in a base on the eye and forms and an appropriate act of attention, no eye consciousness arises, no I see something. This is how conditioning arises. Or with this feeling as a condition, the craving arises. I eat something nice and oh, this tastes so nice. And straight away craving, I want more of that. But I'm not sure, is that what you mean, Malik? Or what, what do you mean with that question? Other than Nibbana, everything. Is it chasing feelings, not knowing the nature of impermanence? Is it chasing feelings, not knowing? Yeah, that is. Yeah, that is no more response of the mind. Yeah. And if you knew their impermanence, you wouldn't chase them. And that is wisdom. That is insight. To Understand the feeling, even if it feels so good. Oh, is that nice? Even though it's so painful, oh, I can't take it anymore, it's too painful. But one wouldn't respond like that if one could clearly know the permanent nature of these feelings. It wouldn't matter so much anymore. Things come in the sense doors and don't go out. Yeah, that's a good question, Was In a sense, we can also say the other way around, that the mind goes out through the sense doors. Also, the corruptions cause, cause our mind to flow out into the world. There's also a good perspective to take. And normally, the mind is, is content and inside and in, in samadhi. And then it flows out through the sense doors driven by craving and sensuality, the mind comes out, so to speak. So I think that is quite valid to also regard the sense doors as an opening where the mind can flow out into sensuality and lose itself in the external world, so to speak. And that also has to be restrained. And that is the ultimate restraint, to restrain the asavas, the deepest underlying defilements, the karmasava, bhavasava, avijasava, the outflow of sensuality, and the mind always wanting to go outside because it has some central interest, wants to get some nice feeling, wants to get some nice sense of experience. The bhavasava, the mind flowing out into, into existence, into being, into becoming, into the next birth, and the mind flowing out now by terms of now, ignorance and delusion. One can argue now, that one wants to restrain the sense doors in, in both directions. It's not just things coming out, but it's also the problem that our mind always wants to go out through these sense doors.
I'm ready to let everyone know the latest regulations. So um, everyone can receive in their household five visitors. And these five visitors from today don't have to be from the same household. But there's a limit of five visitors to any private household that is here in Queensland. I can't talk for other states or countries. To the best of my knowledge, from what I gather from these sets direction. Uh, so if we receive, you know, I consider another residence, maybe also like a household, because we live here long term. And then we can have you know, five people coming as, so to speak, private visitors at one time. They don't have to be from the same household. We also have an allowance now to do small religious ceremonies with 10 people maximum. However, this wouldn't get us very far because that includes you know, the people who are here already. And they're wanting that on the, I think they're thinking of a church more when they do these regulations. And the church is empty and now 10 people go in to do something. In our case, maybe we have six people here already. So in a ceremony with tenderness, doesn't doesn't really work very well. So we are planning uh, once they probably increase to 20 on the 13th of June, then it will make more sense for us to start the Sunday afternoons again. But currently for the Dana, Rukmani is rostering that anyhow, so we have to continue uh, having it only by appointment, the Dana offering because otherwise there's no way how we can control how many people come and we have to keep it to five only. So it continues being rostered by Bokmani. But five people can now come for for the dana, for offering dana, they can come from different households as long as it's only five maximum. And we're also inviting people in after they put out all the food and then Hardy and Stefan are taking it and arranging it on the buffet. And meanwhile, we invite everyone in who came, these five people, into the Dhamma Hall, and we have a short discussion, and uh, we can do the formal Sangatana again, because uh, we can conduct small ceremonies, and then there'll be five people plus the four monks in the hall. It's only nine. We can do a short uh, religious ceremony of offering Sangatana and chanting the blessing we don't start the food scene yet because it is very difficult to do with social distancing. And so right after the Anamodana, the generous donors would, would be leaving again. Another question from Malik. Therefore, there is no value in pleasure? Question mark. Is there no value in pleasure? No, I mean, there's a certain value in pleasure because you know, whatever feels pleasantness is a reward in itself. You usually like it. But the Buddha would do what is called Nivibhajjavada. That question doesn't allow for a categorical answer. It has to be analyzed. The Buddha was skillful in questions and one has to distinguish different forms of questions and how they should be answered or not answered. If, if someone asks, is there no value in pleasure? And I say, no, it's not quite correct. And if I say, yes, if I say, yes, it's also not quite correct. 
the correct thing is I would have to counter question and analyze more and ask what kind of pleasure do you mean? And there's different forms of pleasure and we have to distinguish them. And uh, some people feel a great pleasure when they go hunting and when they shoot an innocent kangaroo or deer and it may give them a really good feeling. It's, it's difficult for me to relate to that and how, how someone can get a pleasant feeling from killing a, a creature like a kangaroo or a deer. But you know, this is a reality and some people will have a very good feeling when they do that. Uh, according to the Buddha, there's absolutely no value in that. And this is something you know, outright evil and will lead to bad karma and so on. So you know, the pleasure some people may receive from killing other beings, you know, there's no value in that, according to the Buddha. Then there's maybe the pleasure if you buy yourself uh, a huge family-sized pizza and eat it all on your own. This is not really evil, it's not really much bad karma there, but there's also nothing particularly noble or good and may not be so good for the health if it's too much. And uh, so there also the Buddha wouldn't say there's no real value in that either. So the pleasant feeling we get just from eating some nice food, which we get for ourselves and eat it, there's not much value in that either. But there's also a pleasant feeling which you get when you're, like today, and the two people came and they offer some food to the Sangha here. Many people, when they come here, they feel very happy. What always is a little bit puzzling or even stunning to me as a Buddhist monk coming from a Western background, where generosity is not so strongly ingrained in the whole the whole tradition of the country and so on. But it's always stunning for me when people come here and they come the long way and they offer food. And sometimes when they leave, they say, thank you, Ajahn. It's just amazing. <laughs> they do so much and offer so much and they, when they leave, they say even thank you. And for me, that was always quite, it take, took, took some time to get my mind around that. But then, what it's probably coming from is that they actually feel quite happy when they're doing that. And the happiness we get from being generous, from making good karma, from making punya, pin, boon. There's a happiness that comes from that. Now, there is value in that for sure. So if that is what you mean by pleasure, the pleasure you get from being generous and giving something to other beings, and even just the pleasure of giving a cover to a horse, you know, feeding some uh, bird food, suitable seeds, whatever, and maybe for some birds in winter, or putting in the drought, putting something out you know, for the kangaroos that they get some water to drink, or things like that. One feels straight away happy. And in that pleasure, there is value. The same with precepts. Some people may find it hard to believe as well, but uh, keeping precepts can actually feel very good. In the beginning, if one is not used to it and one has to retrain oneself, it can be a little bit, feel also unpleasant if someone is used to drinking quite a bit. 
and then they go sober, teetotaler, it may not feel nice in the beginning. But once one has settled in and one keeps the precepts, it actually feels really good. And in that pleasure of being virtuous, there's great value. The Buddha even has different names for all these different pleasures. Now, under Vajrasukha, blameless happiness, that's the happiness which really has value, blameless pleasure from being virtuous, also called the freedom from remorse, a vipper disorder. And there's great value in that. And sense restraint is another one. We talked about the restraining ourselves. Most people feel maybe restraint is a good thing to do, but it feels us so unpleasant. No, no. Once a sense restraint is really established, and if that is practiced very skillfully with wisdom and mindfulness, you will notice now, that uh, more sense restraint actually feels better than less sense restraint. Feels very good, the Buddha calls it Abhyaseka Sukha, unsullied pleasure. And then the pleasure now, of jhana samadhi, and then the pleasure of insight and nibbana. Now, the highest pleasure is Padamangsa uh, coming to the attainment of nibbana, and there's the ultimate value in that. In terms of sense restraint, we can uh, notice that ourselves. If you're really unrestrained, so one day, maybe you're struggling a little bit, keeping your weight down and not eating too much fatty stuff or too much sweet stuff. And now one day you decide, or oh, you're just totally indulged, totally unrestrained. Now for a short while, while you're stuffing yourself, it may feel pleasant, but... How do you feel the next day? Not nice at all, isn't it? It's the same. If we can notice if we ever get really, really fully unrestrained and we fully go letting loose, totally unrestrained, one can notice that one feels not very happy at all afterwards, often quite miserable. On the other hand, if you go maybe for a retreat, and after one week, ten days, with this very high level of restraint, the people often are on a real peak at the end of that. They may have had a hard time for periods, but they often feel so happy because of that restraint. So coming back to Malik's question, so we have to analyze that, it has to be counter-questioned and analyze what what kind of pleasure are you talking about? And if you talk about the value of the pleasure of samadhi, you know, the Buddha literally said that we should answer that yes, as followers of the Sakyan sage, uh, as followers of the Sakyan sage, you know, we are devoted to the pursuit of pleasure. It's not normally how you would think a, a Buddhist uh, is defined as devoted to the pursuit of pleasure. But it is not another pleasure of sensual indulgence or even doing unwholesome things like killing, but it's a pursuit of wholesome pleasure, in particular the pleasure of samadhi. 
So there's great value in the pleasure of samadhi. Okay, any other one? Any other questions, comments? So to sum it up, uh, we practice restraint by body, speech, and mind, and we practice restraint you know, all around. Restraint is good for everything. And as was mentioned, it's not only restraint what comes in through the senses, but it's also stopping our mind to constantly flow out through the senses into the world of centra- centrality and being, existence, becoming, and ignorance. And we have to learn to carefully distinguish what is really essential. And if they put out a health directive, maybe we have to keep that. And it's obviously also important that the government is putting that out to protect us all. So by all means, keep it, but also understand that they have the priorities wrong in what they consider essential and non-essential. And Dhamma practice is actually essential. And we will still do it here within the confines of these regulations. But I hope we can all work together and spread the Dhamma so that this in this society, when the next pandemic comes around, Dhamma practice is no longer put at rock bottom of the non-essential activities, <laughs> but will be ranked up a little bit gradually by us all practicing and by diffusion getting that understanding out in the wider society so that in wider society we have a more wise setting of priorities and a more mature understanding about what is essential and what is not essential. Okay, I end like always with a short blessing. Thank you for your patience and May you all remain healthy, safe, and restrained, and the restrictions are being loosened now. Bahumwe Sadanangyanti Papatani Mananicha Ara Marokachetya Nim Manasabayatrachita Netanko Sadanangiman Netam Sadanamotaman Nathan, Sadhanamakama, Sapadaka, Pamachati, Yochibut Hansudan Mansha, Sanghansha, Saranangato, Chataro, Ariya Sachani, Samapanya, Yapasati, Nokam, Nokasamapadam, Nokasachati, Kamang, Ariyam Chatangi, Kamakam, Nokupasamakaminang, Etanko Saranangi Mang Etang Saranamotamang Etang Saranamakam Sapadoka Pamochati